Well, it's, uh, it's easy for a church after it is, uh, is established, after, uh, after it gets its programs running, uh, kind of gets its rhythms kind of in place, to kind of take it easy. I shared the story uh, a few weeks ago about a young hiker who attempted to climb uh, Mount, Mount Blanc uh, um, with, with other people. And in that climb, uh, he, had, uh, he had to shed all of his comforts and even all the things he perceived as necessities in order to make it to the actual top. And so we talked about in that, that story how they were heading up and the other people found the young guy who went ahead with all of his stuff, he had shed it all to the side of the, the, the path in order to make it to the top. Yet many churches um, have attempted uh, to climb the mountain that God's put in front of them, the mission that God has in front of them, uh, to fulfill the Great Commission, to do as Acts 1, we saw last week, said, to go, uh, go to all the world and preach the gospel, right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, to take the gospel to serve people. But many churches don't quite make it to the top. They have aspirations. Uh, they may uh, even talk a good game. They may uh, even throw some money at it. But eventually, it's too hard. Right? Too much sacrifice, uh, too costly, and they, they kind of set up camp, as it were, halfway up the mountain and just uh, are content to just exist. Maybe they make some trades. We talked about this, right? Maybe they make some trades with some other local churches. They uh, move some members here to there, and they kind of just move around, but they're just trading with each other. They're not climbing the mountain. They're not moving into the world that God wants to move into for the sake of the gospel, and slowly but surely, they go out of existence. When this happens... Um, in a church, what has happened in that church is it has turned inward instead of outward. Uh, they develop, sometimes we call it a Christian bubble, right, and start to isolate themselves from the loss, the suffering, the dying around them. Uh, few, if any, of its members may know unbelievers around them. And many times what happens, instead of standing kind of shoulder to shoulder and kind of moving along uh, towards the mission God has for them, they, they tend to turn towards each other. Maybe you've seen this, experienced this. And they start, instead of marching forward, they start attacking each other. And if they really have a lot of energy left over, they turn around and they attack other churches as well, right, to kind of keep that going. And that becomes sort of the mission um, of the church. Also, what goes hand in hand with this type of situation is often, as we'll see in our passage today, is prayerlessness. Now, make, make myself clear here, what I'm talking about is not that the church doesn't pray in its services or the church doesn't pray for their meals or they don't pray at the conclusion of a Bible study or a Sunday school class or whatever you have there. What I mean is that their hearts have kind of drifted off mission. They've become consumed uh, with their own kind of maybe personal missions instead, right? Their prayers have turned inward instead of outward. Um, their cry, the cries of the broken the lost, the hurting aren't hurt anymore, and, the, and so the prayers for them to be saved, to be loved, to be served aren't on their lips anymore either, right? All the prayers have turned inward. I would say uh, for us in our current situation as, uh, as Parkside, I've, I've been here six years now uh, almost. Eddie would, would probably challenge me on that because I always get the, the numbers wrong, but it has been six. Matter of fact, that sermon last Sunday, if you've been here through the last six years, was the first sermon ever preached here, uh, almost six years to the date, actually. Um, Acts chapter one, and, I, and I've had I've had uh, I've had my hair turn gray, I had my hair fall out, um, I have my beard is actually not this black. Usually it's called just for men uh, to kind of keep it kind of dark. <laughs> Otherwise it would be all gray. Um, we as pastors have have uh, labored to turn the church around in terms of, of of what it not just what it believes but what it preaches and how it functions um, in terms of how the New Testament instructs us. We've worked hard on that over these last six years. 
Uh, we have, uh, we've changed the church doctrinal statement, made it more clear, we hope, um, changed even the church polity and the church government, how it functions, the way pastors and deacons function. Uh, we've also established uh, from here on this, this pulpit on Sunday mornings uh, an expository kind of gospel-centered preaching as a regular diet for you. You've come to expect us to go through book by book, verse by verse, and talk about Jesus a lot. That's been good. Right? I'm very, very happy with how, uh, how many of you have, have stuck through all of that. It's very hard. Change is a loss. Change is always lost, no matter if it's good or, or bad. Uh, it hurts. And uh, we started to ascend, as it were, the mountain that God has for us. And it, it wasn't easy, still isn't, isn't easy, but we're ascending it and we're moving that direction. Now, the reason we're in the book of Acts, the reason we took time in Matthew and while we're in Acts, is if we don't intentionally now turn outward, okay, um, and get on mission, do all we can to, to reach a lost and dying world, to serve the hurting, pray with all we have for Jesus to work through us. We're in danger of becoming that church that kind of makes it halfway up the mountain and just stops and camps out and exists, right? We set up camp halfway up the mountain. We need to wake up to the reality of the mission in front of us, the need that is around us, and why God even has us here in the first place. Don't miss the fact, the first thing, when I think about with Paul First thing he does in instructing the church, when he writes his letters, we call them pastoral epistles, right? First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus. And in First Timothy, as he writes, chapter three there, talks about the reason he wrote those books was to basically teach the church how to function. And the very first thing, very first command he gives before he talks about preaching, before he talks about reading the word, before he talks about the, the pastors and deacons and all the things that we think about as a church, the first thing he says, first of all, chapter two, verse one, he says, first of all, and the idea is a matter of importance, the first thing I want you guys to do as a church is I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. It's interesting. You probably may not think about that. That's the first thing the church is supposed to do. That is the central, very most important part, Paul says, before we get into all the other stuff, we've got to do this, is to pray. And not just pray, but pray specifically for, it says here, for all people and the idea is that he goes on to, in that passage to explain those people outside of the church, those who are lost and dying and hurting. A few weeks ago, uh, you may know, probably know this story, a few weeks ago in north, uh, northern Texas, there was a, a massive 133-car pileup, right? The black eyes hit, hit uh, fast, and people weren't able to stop in time, and this massive car pileup that, that occurred uh, during that uh, six people had, had died from that. It reminded me of a story um, that I read about before uh, in a similar kind of car pileup that was due to not black ice, but dense fog on a bridge in London. Uh, in that story uh, that I read about, there were, though the hazard lights were on from the cars that had been damaged already, they couldn't be seen by the oncoming, oncoming traffic. Ten people at this point in the story had already died in the car accidents in the pileup when two police officers arrived on the scene to try to help out. When they saw the horrendous accident, uh, they ran back up the roadway, kind of towards the beginning of the bridge, and began to just wave their hands and, and, and as, as big as they could to try to get the cars to pay attention to the oncoming um, pileup on the bridge. When, uh, one of the off police officers, it says, picked up traffic cones and started flinging them at the oncoming cars to try to get their attention to stop. And one officer told the story, he said, he, said, he told how tears were streaming down his partner's face as he flung these cones as car after car ignored what he was trying to get them to do and they just awaited for the sickening impact of, of the cars to crash on the bridge ahead. So think about that story. It could say in a way that Jesus is flinging cones at us. 
okay, to wake up. Like, there, there is something bigger than our own little personal agendas here. There's, there's something bigger than that. We can't just cruise in our Christian life, be oblivious uh, to the cries of those around us and continuing to kind of pad our life and increase our bubble and insulate ourselves from the rest of the world. We can't be prayerless having no one to bring to God, right? We can't be prayerless in terms of having no one to bring to God, to ask God to, use, to work in us and use us in their lives. So what do we do? What do we do if we find ourselves prayerless, especially for the lost and broken and hurting around us? What do we do? In our section of scripture, what we find, as we saw last week, Jesus has given his commission to them, and we find the followers of Jesus immediately after that commission, and immediately after Jesus has ascended and gone into the, to the heavens, into the sky, and we find that they're to take the gospel to the end of the earth. As we saw last week, they were kind of dumbfounded. Remember the angels kind of come along and put their arms around their shoulder and like, hey guys, what you looking at? Like, we, I know you're, you're afraid. They were tempted, no doubt, uh, to just, to, just to huddle up, right? That's the temptation. Huddle up, stay safe, stay in this home that they were, we'll look at today, the kind of where they were at. Maybe do some Bible study, but not really verge uh, outside of that. But we find them, and this is very important, what we find in this passage is they're devoted to prayer. They're devoted to that. And God used that peace to move them forward. And so let's look at how they prayed. Let's look at uh, how we can pray. That God will stir our affections for the lost and dying world around us. And here's what we're going to see. Okay, we're going to look at we need to wait in prayer, connect in prayer, persist, persist in prayer, and have confidence in prayer. That's where we're going, right? Number one. Wait in prayer. So verse 12 begins, says, They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. All right, so the disciples are just now getting over the shock, okay, you can imagine, of seeing Jesus, who they'd spent three years with, right, at least, and seeing him go into the sky and leave. And they're on this, on this one-mile journey uh, on foot back to the city of Jerusalem. No doubt they're talking about the implications of the ascension, Right? Wondering what exactly is going to happen with this. He says the Spirit's going to come. The Spirit's going to come and empower us, like probably discussing what that's going to look like. And they would return to Jerusalem from that mountain. They would go into the city and they would wait 10 more days, the pastor's going to tell us, in prayer. And Jesus told them the Spirit was coming to send them on mission, but they weren't exactly certain what all that meant. And we'll see that next week and what that actually looks like. I wonder what they were thinking, though. I always like to ask that question. I wonder what they were feeling. Like, what was going through their head? What were their fears? What were the things that they were anxious about? What was happening? I suspect that some of them, no doubt, maybe Peter, because I imagine he's a little bit more aggressive in many ways. Um, I suspect that they were like, um, why, are we, why are we just sitting here? I mean, why are, we got, why are we waiting here for 10 days? I mean, Jesus is gone. He's instructed us. He's taught us. He's trained us. Like, let's get going. Why are we huddled up in prayer in this room? Like, we... There's a loss of dying world out there. Like, we need to go. I'm sure some of them probably had that because it had to be hard for them. If you, we go back and read the Gospels, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four accounts of the life of Jesus. And if you read those accounts, whenever the disciples were, were told to do something, they were told to do it immediately. They didn't have to wait when people were hungry that one time, remember, or twice, actually. They were hungry. Jesus would say, you know what, let's just uh, let's huddle up and pray about this, and let's wait and see what, what happens. And No, he says, yeah, you go feed them. Take that bread, take that fish, and go feed them, right? When he, when he gathered them together and, and sent them out on mission, he, he gathered them up and immediately sent them out. When he put them together two by two, 72 of them, and sent them out, they went out immediately. You can read the uh, Gospel of Mark, for example. I think the word immediately is used like a, at least a dozen times in that book, right? They were, they were supposed to immediately go. And here, though, they're supposed to wait. 
You need to wait. Chapter 1, verse 8, right? The Holy Spirit's going to come, but you need to wait. Now, why all this waiting? Why, in some sense, maybe waste time um, 10 days just sitting in a room, as it were? Doesn't Jesus know there's hurting people out there? <laughs> I mean, doesn't Jesus know that eternity weighs in the balance right now? Like, why, why this waiting? And it all sounds admirable, right? Even maybe heroic or bold, but I believe what Jesus is having them do and why they wait in prayer is so that, and this is important, so they won't get hung up on their own kind of self-importance, right? It's easy to do. Think about how easy it would have been to, to kind of swell with pride, to think they were indispensable, to think they were even irreplaceable. You say, how, why would they think that? Jesus had just told them, that little group of people, to go to Jerusalem, Judea, and where? The ends of the earth, right? To go, you're going to take the gospel ends of the earth. And I'm sure for them, it's like, wow, we're the, we're a team here, right? We're, we're top draft picks. I mean, this is, this is going to be good. We're, we're going to do this. But they need to remember that the success of the mission of God, where people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will come to Jesus, was not dependent upon them. And it's not dependent upon our own creativity, ingenuity, or persuasiveness. We're not as important as we think we are, okay? Usable. Yes. Instruments? Sure. Tools? Probably more ways than one. <laughs> Essential? No. This is why Jesus has them wait in prayer, right? This is why he has us wait in prayer. This is why the answer to many of our prayers, usually the answer is always an answer, right? Usually the answer is what? Wait. <laughs> Just wait. What, why? Why does that happen? God wants us to depend on him for life, breath, and all things. He wants us to depend on him for the completion of the very mission he is sending them out on. I mean, I know that the title of this book, as I look in my, my version, it says The Acts of the Apostles. That's not inspired, by the way. That was added. That's not part of the original scriptures there. It's actually probably not a great title. The, the title, actually, of the book is probably, we'll see this next week, is actually The Acts of the Holy Spirit Through the Apostles, right? It's really the, the Holy Spirit is the, the protagonist here, the hero of the story of the book of Acts, not the apostles. And this is what's happening here. They're having to wait for these 10 days so that God builds in them that trust and dependence upon him and deflates some of their own kind of self-importance. No doubt there was many verses that the, this group, as I imagine them for 10 days, rehearsing in their mind or maybe even praying and teaching each other or preaching to each other, as it were, these truths, day two, day three, day nine, as they're gathered together, like still praying, going, okay, when is this going to happen? Uh, just look at some of these. In, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of references to this. Psalm 27, 14 says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 37, 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Psalm 62, 5 through 8. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. This is the psalmist speaking to himself. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Psalm 130 begins this way. It says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ear be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits in his word, I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman in the morning, more than a watchman in the morning. Psalm, um, Isaiah 64, verse 4 says, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the, by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. 
Lamentations 3.26, it's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Hosea 12.6, so you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. I mean, this is just a sample. It's all over the place, right? This call to continue to wait. When a church, when Christians wait on God in prayer, they grow in trust, they grow in patience, they grow in faith, and they grow in humility, right? That self-importance kind of begins to go, go down. And when they turn those prayers outward towards the lost, suffering, and hurting world around them, instead of inward on themselves, they, they turn prayer, this is one of my favorite little statements, uh, a guy named John Piper, who was a pastor, was a pastor in Minnesota, um, but he, uh, he, he, he talked about when the prayer turns from being inward, maybe it's just all about ourself, and it turns outward towards the lost and dying world, he says prayer transforms into a, a wartime walkie-talkie <laughs> to call for more ammunition and more troops as opposed to the domestic intercom in the house to call for more food from the kitchen, Right? It transforms it. It's not just, I need some more food, I need some more comfort. It's like, no, I need some help out here. I need some people to come help me. We got people dying out here, right? The whole prayer changes, you see? And that's what we're seeing here. That's what they're praying about in this way. The result is a church that grows closer to Jesus and closer to each other. The result is when we wait in prayer in this way, the result is a church that looks not to its own interests, but the interests of others. The result is a church that knows that it's all about Jesus, the whole mission's about him and following his mission instead of their own personal missions and agendas. Okay, number two, connect in prayer. So not only do they wait in prayer, they connect in prayer. Look at verse 13. It says, when they had entered, they went to this upper room where they were staying, and he kind of begins to list off all these people that were gathered. So the disciples arrived in Jerusalem, okay? And it seems from the language, actually, because it's the same language used in the Gospels, that the room they went to, the upper room, if you're familiar with the Gospels, that may sound familiar, it's the same place they went to where they had the last meal with Jesus before he was betrayed and went to the, the, uh, the Mount of Olives where he was betrayed and then eventually crucified. So they go back to this big room where they had a meal. And uh, the room was basically, as a, uh, we could think of it in the back of that time, uh, maybe today it would be like a large, a very large kind of apartment on the second floor. Okay, the house would be at the bottom, and there'd be this really kind of almost flat roof area built on top of it, and it would be a very large area. It was large enough to, as we find out, to fit 120 people. So, so it's a large, big kind of room space on kind of a second floor. And uh, it says in verse 14, all of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and it goes on to list the others that were here. So to be, of, to be of one accord, as the passage says, is to be focused together on the same goal, to be on the same mission, not on their own personal ones, but they're all together on the same one. They're all waiting on Jesus together to get moving. They were praying to Jesus together. They were preparing for the mission together. This is what they were doing. So they connected in prayer. And in doing so, they deepened their relationships with one another through this time. And, and yes, it was this little group, this little group that would soon turn the world upside down. But understand, they didn't do it flying solo. They didn't all 120 just disperse and go their own way. They were, they were together. Even when the, when, the, when the Holy Spirit comes, we'll see next week, and they move out on mission and begin speaking about Jesus, they do it together still. They're together. Uh, for each of them to go back to their homes during this time, for each of them to, to, go, to go back to their homes, individual places, and pray for 10 days all alone would not be as effective as all of them being together in prayer, just like it wouldn't work for them to run off on mission alone. They needed to pray together. They need to go on mission together. That's what it means to be a church, okay? There's something special about praying together, right? We're challenged. 
We're encouraged, we're strengthened. And no doubt during these times of prayer in the upper room, you can imagine, I imagine that during these times they were gathered together, they probably, probably heard some honesty, right? There's probably some honesty of being scared to what this is going to look like when the Holy Spirit comes and we're going to go out to the ends of the earth. We're going to be, as we talked about last week, the word for witnesses was the word for martyr. So no doubt they're thinking to themselves, like, this is going to hurt, okay? This is not going to be necessarily fun. So there was some, some fear there. Maybe some, some humble, humble admission from some of them of like they care more about themselves and their own comforts than that of, of those around them. Maybe others were, uh, were admitting they, they didn't have a heart really for, for other people. All these things were kind of happening. We can maybe see a few of them start to gather together, pray over each other to kind of encourage one another to, to, to ask God to work in each other's life. This is the church in action, right? This is what they're praying for that mission. They're praying for the lost. They're praying for the hurting around them. They're asking God to move in their hearts. That is, that's what's changing them, and we'll see what happens. And there's a reason. I've said this so many times, but it's so important because when you read the Bible in English, you don't really pick this up, right? We have, just hold on for a second, English grammar for a moment, right? You have uh, first, first person singular, second, I'm sorry, second person singular, for second person plural, right? It's all, in English, it's you and you. You have no idea which one they're talking about unless you get the context. In the New Testament, the vast majority, and I don't know the percentage, but it's probably somewhere around 90% of the commands ever given by Jesus or any of the apostles or any of the New Testament epistles is in plural, okay? So when you read it, it's almost, it's almost always you all or y'all, depending on what, what north or south of Indiana you're from, okay? Um, so it's y'all every time. So even if you look at the text, if you look back up at verse 8, you'll find this is really, I'm going to use the southern Indiana version of this one, okay, so you get the idea. It's y'all who will receive power, right? The Holy Spirit will come upon y'all, all right? And y'all will be my witnesses, okay? So that's what he's saying. It's, it's you guys will do this together, not individually. We, we, in the Western world, we so read everything individualistically, right? The New Testament is not individualized in that way. It's plural. It's the church. It's them together, okay? You say, but you don't understand, Chris. I'm not, I'm not good with people. I'm better on my own, right? I know that feeling. I, I, I tend to like want to fly solo. I get the idea, right? But for some of you, it's like, you know, I don't, I don't get along with people very well. I tend to rub people the wrong way. I don't really fit into groups. I'm not really comfortable in groups. I'm more of a loner, more of an introvert kind of person. I want to get on mission, but I think I'm going to need to do this all by myself. I mean, I'll attend a service or something, get some encouragement, but then I'll go do my own thing. I want you to take a look at this group for a minute. There's 120 of them. Now, the, it doesn't tell us all 120 names, but I go back through the Gospels and start recounting some of the people that came to know Jesus and started following him that I think probably are in this group. And it's interesting to think of the dynamic of this group, okay? Uh, there's, there's men and women. There is, we would consider maybe from a political standpoint, there's right-wing, left-wing political views in this group. There's blue-collar, white-collars, right? There's introverts, there's extroverts, uh, there's a former tax collector like Matthew, and then there were a religious zealot who tried to kill tax collectors like Simon, <laughs> okay? There's uh, the blue-collar kind of fisherman -like guy like Peter, and there's the white-collar guy like Joseph of Arimathea is probably there. Uh, there's a thief, maybe like Zacchaeus. Remember him, the wee little man? The wee little man was he, right, that guy? <laughs> there's a former dead guy like Lazarus, and there's a perspective, right? I mean, he's there telling them about that. There's former demon-possessed people, there's former prostitutes, there's former self-righteous uh, self religious people, there's former skeptics in the group, there's former mockers in the group. We know that because Jesus' half-brothers were there who mocked him and didn't believe in him. 
former racists, I would say, like James and John. Remember, they hated the Samaritans. They wanted to kill them off. Wanted Jesus, let's just bring down some fire and smoke them all and kill them all, and we'll make our way through Samaria back in John 4. Uh, there's people who, um, and there's probably, no doubt, people from Samaria, probably the Samaritan woman from John 4 who came to know Jesus and some of the people from her town that she brought, right? If you know that story. So, like, they're all together in the same room. I'm sure that would be an interesting conversation. So you wanted to pray that God would bring down fire on us. Okay. Um, and there's uh, Jesus' own mother is there. And we also find out that probably the Roman centurion that uh, Pastor Justin preached a few weeks ago uh, that was at the foot of the cross who recognized Jesus for who he was, who actually led the crucifixion, most likely came to know Jesus. Maybe he's there too with Mary who was there seeing her son die. Like all of those people, that's a, that's a pretty eclectic group, right? I mean, that's a group of enemies probably in many ways and people who maybe have some, some hurt there. I would love to have seen a group photo, right? 120 of them all together would have been interesting. But this group didn't get any stranger. There were no cool vibes coming from this room, right? I'm sure if you were starting a movement, you wouldn't start with anybody in this group necessarily. You, you, you would not pick them. If you were doing fantasy games, right, like fantasy baseball, which is about to come up, which I love fantasy baseball. But if you have fantasy football, whatever, fantasy basketball, these are the people that you don't draft. They stay in the free agent pile, okay? <laughs> You're like, no, nah, we're not going to select them. But that's the group that Jesus calls in. They're very eclectic, very, very different. We need this kind of vibrant, diverse type of community. And understand that if, you, if you're here and you love Jesus, you fit, okay? <laughs> you fit. It doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have. It doesn't matter what you drive or don't drive, where you live or where you don't live, the color of your skin or the, your education or your age. We need each other. We need you, okay? We need to be together on this. We need, we need each other's gifts, each other's stories, each other's talents, each other's experiences, all to join together in prayer for those who are out there and move out together. We don't get to choose the family of God, right? We understand from the Bible that God chooses his own children, okay? He does it. And we need to connect together in prayer for the mission, sharing with each other who we are who we're in contact with, who we're striving to reach and serve, and lifting each other up and seeking to help each other on mission. We need to repent and get over our kind of petty preferences, you know, so the person next to you right now may have some strange idiosyncrasies, right? Maybe they're slightly peculiar and eccentric, you know, no elbowing right now, but so are you, all right? <laughs> so maybe, we're all a little strange. You'll be surprised how many disputes, how many squabbles within a local church are squashed when you actually join a mission together. Because you don't have time, right? It's the wartime walkie-talkie time, right? We're, we're calling for more ammo. And we're calling for more people, to get more soldiers in the battle. Let's, we're, we're trying to move forward together. We don't have time to have friendly fire. It's like, it's like when you're the same bunker together, right, in that sense. And, the, and so it is prayer that united this group together, and it's prayer that united them to move them out on mission. Number three, persistent prayer. Verse 14 again says, all these with one accord were devoting, the word devoting themselves to prayer. The context suggests uh, that they focused their prayers on what they had seen and heard in recent days and asked for Jesus to do what he said he would do. So they were praying about what Jesus had said about them going out on mission, right? About going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, and that the Holy Spirit was going to come. That's kind of the context, the theme of their prayer. And they kept at it. To devote means to persevere, to continue in, to not quit. Matter of fact, the, the word in the kind of secular Greek language at the time, the actual word to, to, uh, to persist in this way or to devote oneself is actually it was a word used to refer to someone who's very obstinate, someone who's very hard-headed, right? 
very stubborn, maybe someone you know, okay? Um, you know, just, just very stubborn, very hard-headed, just very persistent. That's the idea of the word. They were persistent. They were hard-headed in prayer, okay? Uh, they were devoted in that sense. Also, it's present tense. So it wasn't just a one-time, hey, let's pray one time. It's like they devoted themselves continually to praying together for the sake of the mission and the loss and the broken, hurting people around them. I love how John MacArthur put it this way. He called, it, he called this kind of persistent prayer, he called it um, God consciousness. I love that, God consciousness. It wasn't that they, understand when it says they were here 10 days, maybe, you, maybe immediately you think, oh, when? Did they sleep? I mean, did they just like stay and pray for 10 straight days, like all together? Like, man, I pray for like five minutes and I lose my train of thought. Like, I don't know, how did they do this for 10 days, right? Maybe that's what you think. The idea is not that they were like all 10 days, like huddled up in prayer. The idea is that they, were, they, they just were praying nonstop, meaning Jesus was always on the brain, as it were. Jesus and what he had said was always on their lips. It was what they were thinking about. They were thinking about the chapter one, verse eight, you know, go uh, into all the world, go to the Jerusalem, Judea, Samarians of the earth, and the Holy Spirit's gonna come. And that was just their theme. It was always on their mind. No doubt many of them had to go to work during the day. Okay? It wasn't like they took 10-day vacation here. I mean, they, had, they probably went to work during the day and they came back together at night to maybe return in the evenings to pray together. But even as they worked, even as they carried out a livelihood during those days, they persisted, the idea, they persisted in prayer. God was always on their brain, right? Uh, Paul, in the book of Ephesians, maybe you're familiar with this, and into that book, chapter 6, he lists off what he calls the armor of God. And he gives all these kind of spiritual sides of what it looks like to be kind of have this armor on. And the last piece, which is not always included, is actually prayer. It's the one he talks about the most. This is what he says. After he lists off all that armor, he says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that and keep alert with all perseverance, make a supplication for all the saints. So this makes prayer, if you're thinking about it as an armor, as a military kind of a term, prayer is actually kind of like the spiritual air the soldier breathes, right? It's what he takes in, what he takes out, what she takes in, what she takes out. Um, this is that Paul, as well as Luke in our writer in Acts, is telling us that prayer is more than a Sunday thing. It's more than a, um, a morning or evening thing. It's, it's everything. As a matter of fact, every time something big happens in Acts, you'll see this. If you want to read ahead and kind of start reading the book of Acts, let me encourage you to do that. But as you read and look ahead, every time something big happens in Acts, and there's a lot of big events. We'll look at these kind of things that happen. You know what you'll find? Before that happened, the church was gathered together in prayer <laughs> for the mission that God had them on. Let me give you some examples. Acts 2 Verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. A couple verses later, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts 6, verse 4 says, but we would devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Verse 7, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. Acts chapter 9, verse 11 says, the Lord said to him, rise, go to the street called Straight, the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. He has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so he might regain his sight. This is Saul who got converted and changed his name to Paul, so he'll be a main character later on in the book of Acts. But look at how that, that chapter ends, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, there's a couple of our places from Acts 1-8, had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied, right, continued to grow. Acts 13, verse 2, and while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And that begins a crazy journey in the book of Acts right after that of 
all these different churches planted all over uh, Greece and even all the way, going all the way to Rome. Um, we see uh, Acts 14, verse 23. It says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, prayer, prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then verse 27, and when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he'd opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Because all of a sudden now people, non-Jewish people are coming to know Jesus now, right? People from all over the world are starting to come to know Jesus. One last example, Acts 16, 25. You may be familiar with the story. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. They were singing hymns to God. Prisoners were listening to them, okay? So prisoners are listening to them praying and listening to them singing. Earthquake happens, and then verse 30, he brought them out and said, Sirs, this is the, jail, the jailman, the, the head guy, says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved, Right? They were listening to his prayers. God answered their prayers, and boom, this, this happened. Right? This, you see this over and over. It's just a sample in the book of Acts. The church praying, and then God, God adds. The church is praying, and God does something with them. This is the church. They persist in prayer when things are exciting. They persist in prayer when things are confusing, and even when things are difficult. Prayer as a church is practiced 31 times in the book of Acts. Right? 31 times. 20 out of the 28 chapters, we find this happening. And the running theme and the running content of the prayers is ultimately about the mission that God has in chapter 1, verse 8. That's the theme running through their prayers. And, it's, uh, it, it, and they knew this, right? This is what it was about. It was about the lost and hurting and broken around them. It, again, was a spiritual air that they breathed on mission. And, and this is, this is what, when a church ceases to do this, when a church ceases to, to focus their attention on Jesus and focus their attention on moving out and, and reaching a lost and dying, hurting world, when that ceases to happen, there becomes, they suffer some internal damage, Right? You see this with the local church, right? So they start to break down, uh, become dysfunctional in many ways. Uh, I read a story, I read a story uh, some years ago, ABC News ran this story, about a, um, a man named Francisco Pippin Ferreres. His nickname was the human fish. Steve, uh, Steve Bush, you'll like this one. This is about diving. This is for you, man. Uh, he was a free diver, that's what they called him. And, uh, and had set, he had set many world records as a free diver. I never heard this term, so I kind of looked into this one. It said, as a free diver, he goes into the ocean, plunges off of his boat with one gasp of air. He then rides down on an 80-pound weight that plunges him down the equivalent of a 50-story skyscraper. When he reaches his depth, he inflates a balloon that will quickly carry him back up. Right? This is what he does. See how deep he can go with one, one gasp of air all the way down. He has gone as, as deep as 558 feet before in one breath. But what's most interesting about the article and about what happened was actually what happens to his body as he descends. The reporter said the following. He said, his heart rate slows to just 14 beats a minute. It's barely a pulse. It says, each of his lungs, normally the size of a football, shrinks to the size of a potato. Blood surges from his extremities to his heart and brain. In short, he's pushing his body to the limit. He's falling apart, just holding, holding his breath and going that deep. And this is many times what happens in the church when it ceases to pray, persistent prayer like this, and especially prayer for the mission, and move prayer outward, do that kind of walkie-talkie-like prayer kind of thing. Their heartbeat for Jesus is barely felt, right? It, it gets down, right? Because they're, they're not really moving out together. And that even though they may study the Bible and may be talking about Jesus, but their heart just kind of begins to drain. I know I feel that way. When, I, when I'm not reaching the loss and not diving into, understand, digging into relationships with unbelievers and seeking to get the gospel out, the soul just kind of shrivels, no matter how much Bible study you do, right? Because you were meant to take that Bible study and go with it, right? Not just keep it and just maintain, you know, build information into your head. 
That's not the main goal, it's just getting information. It's getting information in order to get it out, right? And that's what happens. The soul shrivels up, the energy for the mission gets zapped. They need, we need to persist in this kind of prayer, okay? Number four, lastly, confidence in prayer. Last half of this, uh, this chapter, there's a section here on Judas, which is parenthetical. I'm not going to get into that if you're interested in knowing more about why. That is interesting, right? It says he, his gut spilled out. You're probably like, wow, that was an interesting part of the story. Um, not going to go to that one. I don't have time. But if you're interested, I'll be happy to tell you more about that one. But verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. So here we got 120. And he said, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So here we have Peter. He stands up. We don't know how many days it's been, but apparently they have been praying, possibly with some Old Testament scrolls opened up, right? Praying from memory of some verses maybe they had memorized. And, and understand that this in and of itself is a miracle, right? If, you're just, if you just haven't read anything else in the book of Acts, if you, if you read beforehand in the Gospels, Peter wasn't quite doing well, okay? Um, this is the Peter who he had just read about in Matthew who denied Jesus, no, probably no more than a month ago, maybe two months ago. Jesus had prayed for this, didn't he? Do you remember what Jesus prayed? We told Peter he was gonna fall, but when you do, when you get back up again, do what? Strengthen your brothers? This is the answer to prayer that's happening here, right? Peter communicates to them what Jesus had taught him, uh, taught him about the Old Testament. They're, they must do something about Judas's place among the 12. Someone else had to be an official witness, he says, uh, with them. Now, put that aside for a second and just think about it. The, the, forget the content of it. Just think about the fact that they're asking, they need to find somebody to replace Judas. Think about what that communicates. This tells us that they're expecting their prayers for the mission to be answered. Otherwise, why even search out another witness, right? Why go out and find another witness for what, <laughs> right? I mean, they, they're expecting God. They need to add another person who witnessed the resurrection because we're about, to be, we're about to go, right? There's an expectation of that. They were confident that God was, was for them on the mission he sent them on. They were confident in his words that I'll be with you to the end of the age. They were confident he was gonna send his spirit and they were gonna move out. They knew that. So verse 21, go down there. One of the men who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So beginning baptism of John until the day he was taken up. Okay, so, so they searched the scriptures, they reviewed the teachings of Jesus over the last four days and came to a conclusion. The replacement needed to be a witness of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the ascension as well. Verse 23, they put forward two guys. So here you have Joseph and we have this guy named Matthias. So they evaluated, no doubt, plenty of people. They probably had this discussion. They prayed about it. Uh, they searched the scriptures. Um, they, uh, they began to discuss it, and they came up with two. And so they had two that were viable, and then they, they prayed. Verse 24, they prayed. They said, Lord, you know the hearts, right? Um, and then they asked God to, 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 take, to, to, to choose the person. And their prayer, again, is one of confidence. They are confident that Jesus has already made his choice, and they're just awaiting his direction. They know their theology. They know God knows the hearts of people, even if they don't know them. Um, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful, above all things. Who can understand it? I, 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 the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. God, you know the hearts of these two men. We don't know their hearts. We think they're two, two great men. We put them before you. Help us figure it out. So they cast lots. All right, which you say, what is, what is casting lots? Like, what does that mean? Basically, it, it's not really that, uh, you know, fancy. They would take a rock, <laughs> write a name on one side, name on the other, put it in the bag, reach in, pull, pull it out of the bag, guy give us direction, and, oh, there's his name. Okay, this is, Matthias is the guy, right? That's, that's, that's how it went back then, basically, when they cast a lot, as it were. Uh, Proverbs 16, 33 says, a lot is 
cast into the lap and say every decision is from the Lord. Now, important to know, and we'll say this a lot of time in the book of Acts, okay, there is no further decision-making like this in the New Testament. It's not a way of going like, this is how I'm going to make decisions from now on in life. I'm going to write two options down, put it in a bag, pull it out, and just see what God has, okay? I don't advocate for that, okay? This is a, this is a, this is a descriptive portion of Scripture, not a prescriptive. It's not telling us what we should do. It's just telling us what happened, okay? I'm going to say that a lot in the story in the book of Acts because we have to say that a lot in the book of Acts. But now we have the Spirit, who comes here later in chapter 2, has come to, to let, help, help us make decisions in that way, help us uh, with our fellow believers, follow biblical principles that he's laid out in, in Scripture to help make decisions. But the point here is we can, we can derive from this is that once they had searched the Scriptures and came out with two justifiable options, they put it before the Lord and asked in confidence for him to answer. Now, how could they have such confidence in prayer that the mission was going to be accomplished or at least get started through them? How are they so sure? I mean, because again, they're, they're asking and they're trying to figure out another witness because they know, they're confident they're going to be sent out. How'd they have this confidence that Jesus was truly going to be with them as he said to the end of the age and that the Holy Spirit was going to come? This, the, these 120 people gathering in that upper room would move out in the coming days because ultimately they knew Jesus was for them as they had seen him alive, right? They saw him live a life they could not live. They saw him die a death they should have died. And they saw him conquer the grave, and they saw him ascend. They had no, no need to fear that Jesus wouldn't do what he said. They knew uh, they needed to add another witness, and they knew that Jesus was going to answer their prayers for the mission and lead them, not because they were good enough, not because they were competent enough, not because they were strong enough, but because Jesus was good enough, and Jesus was competent enough, and Jesus was strong enough. Remember the last time in Scripture, if you're familiar with the Gospels, the last time that there was lots cast? Last time there were lots, lots cast in the gospel story was at the foot of the cross. You remember? They were casting lots over Jesus' clothes, of what soldier got what garments of, of uh, clothes. Remember last time they chose between two men? It's also at the cross. Remember who they were? Jesus or Barabbas? Remember who they're going to set free? Um, Barabbas is a, was a robber, a murderer, an insurrectionist. Pilate asked which one of these people, the people wanted to go free Jesus, the innocent, blameless, pure son of God who had never sinned, or Barabbas, the murderer. And the lot fell to Jesus, right? He was the one that had to die. And this was all part of plan A, by the way. This wasn't plan B. Peter would make this clear in chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Why did it have to happen? Because in order to set you free, in order to redeem you, in order to cleanse you, in order to set you on mission for, for Jesus to be with you to the end of the age, he had to go to that cross, which was yours and mine to bear. The cross, that cross Jesus died on, actually belonged to Barabbas. And that cross actually kind of belonged to each of us. But we get to go away, expunged, as it were, <laughs> redeemed, reconciled, cleansed as if we had never sinned. And the result of faith in Jesus makes you not only acceptable to God, but it makes, it, it makes you accessible to God, right? As a Christian now coming to faith in Christ, you're soaked in grace, abounded in mercy, absorbed in love, and Jesus is with us on this mission every step of the way, and he's calling people to us, and he's available 24-7 for us to reach out to, right? For us to, to ask, to move in us, to give us opportunities, to open up doors, and all of that. Don't you want to talk to a God like that? Don't you see why you can wait on him and why you can trust him? Because Jesus loved us enough to die for us. Say what you want about the cross, but I can tell you what, one thing you can never say is that, is that God didn't love us, right? He went to the cross for us. 
You see how we can connect with each other now and why it's so important to be on mission together and be in prayer for the mission together because Jesus died to make us family. He did all that to pull us together. To go our separate ways would be completely contrary to the gospel. Do you see why you can persist in prayer and not give up? Why? Because Jesus didn't give up. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Let this cup pass from me. If not, let your will be done. And it was. He took the cup. He drank every last drop of the wrath of God for us. You see why we can have confidence? We have confidence in the mission because Jesus rose again, is ever-present, has all authority, has the keys to unlock any person's soul, heart at any time. Park says, we go to communion. We have reason to celebrate the grace that we have received. We have no excuse to not pour out our souls to our creator for the sake of the lost and hurting and dying world around us. Jesus has accomplished everything for us. He's with us every step of the way. As you hold a little piece of, that little cup there, it's bread, it has juice. Remember the body of Jesus broken and poured out for you. Don't open it so fast, okay? Some of you are so, just get to it, right? Grab the cup, rip it open. We have pause and time, so you can take it and hold it, but don't open it yet, okay? Give it some time. Reflect on what you're doing. Think about what Jesus has done for you in that way. Remember there was a time but you were lost. Remember there's a time that, that you uh, could care less. You were blind. You were dead in your sins, and Jesus invaded your life and made you alive. Think about that. But I want you to do something specific, though, as you take some time before you take communion, okay? Ask him to, to give you a love, a heart for the lost and broken and hurting around, him, around you. Ask him to give you eyes to see people as Jesus saw people, as we saw in the Gospel of Matthew. Lay before him names, people that come to your mind. Maybe it's, maybe it's a relative. Maybe it's a Maybe it's a child, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a coworker, right? Maybe it's a friend. Um, lay those names before him. Share that with someone else today. Find someone else and say, hey, can you pray with me for this person? Pray with me. Maybe you can come join me. Go to lunch with me, right? Um, find a way to, to do this together. I was just reading this week, uh, I'm in, in the middle of a biography by William Wilberforce, the, the one who over in England helped abolish the slave trade during that time. He came to know Jesus and was pretty radical for him, but one of the things he did is he had a journal, and he wrote down names of people who didn't know Jesus, and he asked God to actually give him creativity and topics that he could bring up with them, specifically. Like, God, help me, help me understand ways that I can talk to them about a subject so that I can talk about you. He actually, he called them launchers. <laughs> he had a whole title, launchers. God, give me a launcher. Help me, help me understand a way I can, I can dialogue in a way, right? Let's pray for those. Pray for launchers. Pray for God to give you opportunities and topics of discussion so that you can get into that and begin to talk about what Jesus has done in your life, all right? If you don't know Christ, the communion is not for you, okay? This is for those who are followers of Jesus. As you take some time here in quiet, bring these things before God, lay them before him. Um, we'll take some time. If you've not come to Jesus, we would love to talk to you about that. If you never talked to God before, prayer is simply talking to God, okay? You can do it quietly. You can do it out loud. It doesn't matter. Um, but that's what it is. Okay? Nothing fancy. God's not looking for specific words uh, that you need to use. He just wants your honesty and your transparency, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for opportunity to be together. Thank you for this focus on prayer. Um, we have to admit that, God, we're not, um, we're not gathered, as it were, this group was, in prayer um, for the mission that you've got before of us. God, move us in that way. Help us to collectively think together of ways in which we can uh, engage, get to know people who are lost, people who are hurting, people who are dying. God, move us out. Um, as we'll see next week, God, when the Spirit of God comes, that things begin to move, things begin to happen. God, the Spirit of God has come. Um, if we're followers of him, God, we have the Holy Spirit of God in us today. God, would you move us out? 
uh, move in our minds and our hearts as we pray to you uh, to give us those opportunities. In Jesus' name, amen.